Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled Gritted Teeth. There's a great story told about little Gladys Aylward, missionary to China. On her adventurous trip to China, she was threatened with malice by a man while she was staying in a hotel in far eastern Siberia. She told the man, if you touch me, my God will strike you down. The man fled in terror. This woman had a rock-solid faith in the powerful protection and provision of God. Do you? Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Eric Ludy. I want to dedicate this message to Pastor Wilkerson. A man who demonstrated better than anyone in a modern generation what it means to have gritted teeth for Jesus Christ. When I go through this message, I want to prepare you for the fact that the concept of faith is one that is aggressive. It is one that has white knuckles. It is one that will not let go And in the process, it shows an attitude and a behavior that to many people in our modern world, they assume that it isn't a Christian behavior. And I want to walk through this. In other words, it is an aggressiveness, it is a tirelessness, and it is a pugnacity. It's a belligerence. But it is not a belligerence against God or against any man. It is a belligerence against sin and its effects in this world. And we will not stand in this generation in silence when 150,000 people a day on average are dying and going to hell. We show a response of soul. And that response is a biblical response. So my message is to lay a foundation for the concept of gritted teeth in hopes that this would honor the foundation and the pattern that men like David Wilkerson have sent for us. The lion, the bear, and the man-beast. David, shepherd boy David, demonstrated gritted teeth. There's all sorts of illustrations in the Bible, but I'm going to camp on this one because it's one of my favorites. And it enunciates it so well. He's entrusted with a flock of sheep. He's actually anointed king, but obviously his dad and his brothers didn't think very highly of Samuel's anointing because they immediately sent him out to deal with the sheep again. He's king of Israel, rightful king of Israel, and he's taking care of sheep. So he takes care of those sheep as if they're the entire nation. And he ruled those sheep the same way he ruled that nation. And it's an incredible picture of gritted teeth. David is coming to deliver bread, cheese to the captains of the Israel army. And behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines. So David is visiting the camp. And lo and behold... This mighty man-beast arises up and begins his daily boast. He's recognized as the champion. Ishi, the man. That would be the term we would even use today. He's the man. Goliath was the impossible to beat foe. And all of Israel trembled before him. And spoke according to the same words, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, the Ishi, fled from him and were sore afraid. And David spoke to the men that stood by him, saying, Now you'll notice I have a little dot, dot, dots. I'm streamlining this story in a big way, okay? But we're just cutting right to the gritted teeth here. And David spoke to the men that stood by him, saying, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you know your God? 
And when you see the giants in this generation that are boasting, that are challenging the church of Jesus Christ, what is your response in your soul? Are you gritting your teeth and saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would dare to blaspheme the armies of the living God? Is there not a cause? And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. David's drawing a parallel to a lion and a bear defying his sheepfold, and a giant defying the armies of the living God. You do not defy that which has been entrusted to the care of David, that which is under the rulership of Jehovah. You do not raise your hand against it. You can be confident that God armeth the patriots. When you stand for the glory of Jesus Christ in a generation, he will infuse you with the necessary strength and the armament to deal with that which opposes you. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear... He will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And you notice the two words that I emboldened here. It's the champion, the Ishi, the impossible to bring down and the impossible to conquer man-beast. This guy has been trained as a warrior since his youth. And when you're a champion, that means you win. And you win, and you win, and you win. Sound familiar? Like the pattern of sin in your life? It's the Ishi. It's one, and it's one, and it's one, and it's one, and the entire nation of Israel is sore afraid of it. David, with gritted teeth, looks at this man beast and says, let me at him. It says, and the Philistine arose, which means he was sitting, and came and drew nigh to meet David. So you can imagine Goliath. Now he's also thrown out a few uh, statements about how unimpressed he is with David. What am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? This is all in the same context. However, I fast forwarded to this scene. The Philistine arises and comes and draws nigh to meet David. And what does David do? He hastens. Hebrew word, to move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. Who is the prey in this situation? David? Goliath. Who's the defeated one? Goliath. What does it look like, though, in the natural? It looks as if David is the puny little one with sticks. Who's the weak one in this situation? Goliath. What do you see? Because what you see in this situation defines how you respond in this situation. Do you see the bigness of your God or do you see the bigness of the enemy? Because what your eyes focus on, your spiritual eyes focus on, defines if you run from battle and you are, quote unquote, sore afraid, or if you hasten and move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards the prey. The enemy is making a boast in our generation. And he's saying, where's your God? So it says all these things in the word of God, but I don't see him. You guys are weak. You're impotent. Your God is no better. What are you going to do about it? You're going to sit there and take it? You're going to be afraid of this man beast? You're going to be afraid that you were born in a generation? 
in which Christianity seems and appears to be impotent, in which the arm of the Lord is no longer powerful as in the ancient days as in the generations of old. What are you going to do about it? You're going to stand there and take it. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. Now you'll notice I have certain words in this scripture that are standing out. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. <clears throat> Donald Miller, who is one of the emergent writers, made a statement and he said, the war metaphor in scripture is tiresome. He's tired of the war metaphor. Well, let's get something clear. War in scripture is not a metaphor. A metaphor is when you liken something to something else. War is an actuality. And if it grows tiresome to you, that means you're tired of even lifting your sword in it. You're going to lose. We either face facts, and that's that we're in the midst of a battle, or we deny it, and we die in the battle. We're in the midst of hostile territory. We're not at a time of peace. We're at a time of war. So if it's growing tiresome to you, buck up! Draw your sword. You've been given the equipment to win. So why am I losing? It's because you no longer believe, or maybe you never have believed, that your God is bigger than the Ishii. Your God is bigger than that man beast. Your God is bigger than all the natural realm can boast. Someone in this generation must rise up and believe it. So let's break this down real quick because some of the things that I'm about to relay to you here are going to sound a little more aggressive than we oftentimes associate Christianity with. Christianity is sort of like, oh, you know, wh whatever you need to do, uh, do. You know, if you want to come in and rob my house, just do. You know, there's a part truth to it. We are pacifists at a certain level as Christians. Someone could strike us on one cheek and we'll turn to them the other. But then at the other side of the coin, as you will soon see here, we are to be militant and aggressive. But we need to know what to hit and what to yield to. When do we say, Father, forgive them? And when do we knock them in the teeth? We need to know. Five principles of the ones with gritted teeth. Stratuyo. It means to make a military expedition. To lead soldiers to battle. We are to make war against darkness. The weapons of our warfare. Okay, that's how it starts out. So Paul is saying, you have a warfare. Did you know that you have a warfare? It's like, what? I, I, I don't feel like I have a warfare. Well, you better. You see, there's a battlefront, and you must recognize that you're in the middle of it. And we have weapons for this battlefront. So we are to make war against darkness. So let's look at this. The weapons of our warfare, or the weapons of our military expedition against darkness, are not carnal, but mighty through God. They're not earthly. And so some of us are like, well, you know what, I'd prefer an earthly weapon here. It'd make me feel a little better. Your weaponry is mighty, but it's not earthly. It's not born of the flesh. It's not of this natural realm. However, it wields a greater power than anything this natural realm could ever wield. You take a physical sword in this natural realm, and it literally has to touch that which it's attempting to hurt. You have to be close in proximity. There's all sorts of limitations to it. You have to be exact. With spiritual weaponry, we cannot just take down one. When you, when you slice with a sword, which, by the way, I've never hit someone with a sword, okay? So it's not like I'm some expert with sword play. If you hit someone with a sword, you hit one. With spiritual weaponry, you swing and you can knock down thousands. This is some powerful stuff. The weapons of our warfare are mighty. Catharsis. It's a pulling down, a destruction, a demolition. We are to demolish enemy strongholds. Okay? You see that? Demolish them. What are you doing with enemy strongholds in your life? I don't know what to do about it. It's just so big. What do you do 
with Jericho. Jericho would have been a stronghold in the land of Canaan. Remember when the Israelites, 40 years in the wilderness, and then they cross over under Joshua? And they have a stronghold. It's called the Jericho, the walls of Jericho. It's a strong tower. It's a stronghold. It is, it is secure against enemy invasion. That's why it has walls. What are you going to do about it? We are to demolish enemy strongholds. Will you try, in your own strength, try coming up to a stronghold and kicking it. You know, you might knock a little dust off the outside, but you're not knocking down the wall. You're commissioned to demolish enemy strongholds. How are you going to do it? You need to start to tap in to the weapons of your warfare, which are mighty, to the pulling them down. The weapons of our warfare, our military expedition against darkness, are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down, to the destruction and demolition of strongholds. Cathyreal, to pull down, destroy, and demolish. We are to destroy anything and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Casting down, which means pulling down and destroying and exploding, imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, we as Christians are supposed to be all peaceful, meek, and mild. What? This is like extreme living here. Exploding, blowing up things, tearing things down. We're in the midst of battle. Uh Uh-oh, this is a hard word to pronounce. Eichmalatizo. To lead away captive, to subjugate, to bring under control. We are to subjugate and master every thought attempting to enter the human mind. You know, that's a, this is a command. We are to show, let's see if I can pronounce it again, akmalatizo, we are to literally lead away captives, to subjugate and to bring under control every single thought that comes into our mind. Bringing into captivity or subjugating, bringing under control every thought to the obedience of Christ. Ekdikio. To avenge a wrong, to vindicate and make right. Does that sound like a Christian right there? This is a command, by the way. We are to be ready to avenge and vindicate the person of Jesus Christ. Remember David? What's going on? The armies of God are being blasphemed. Jehovah's name is being run through the mud. Forty straight days. Goliath has boasted. And David comes into the camp and he hears it. He grits his teeth and he says, this cannot stand in Israel. And having a readiness to revenge or to avenge and vindicate and make right all disobedience. So let's read through this with our expanded amplified edition now. The weapons of our warfare, our military expedition against darkness, are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down, the destruction and demolition of strongholds. Casting down, pulling them down, destroying and exploding imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity, subjugating and bringing under control every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge, avenge, vindicate and make right all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So, as Christians, we are called to be love. We are called to gently respond to those who oppose us. We are called to be meek, which means under control, sort of like a stallion with a harness upon it. We do not respond out of flesh, ever. Our flesh does not control us. Remember Jesus being led to the cross? He is innocent, falsely accused, being mocked and ridiculed. He's the king of the universe, the creator of the universe. And he was meek, which meant even though he had the power of creator, he restrained himself. And was silent as a lamb unto slaughter. It's extraordinary. That's our calling. However, there is a time when you bring about a devastation to the enemy. You know when Jesus was quiet and silent as a lamb? Do you know that he was working a greater destruction on the powers of hell than had ever been worked before? He literally was tearing down strongholds. Pinned to a cross. And he was working violence upon the enemy's kingdom. So we're like, look, he's so nice. He's so gentle. Well, talk to the enemy about how gentle our God is. He's gentle to you because you're his sheep. But when the wolf comes into the camp, the shepherd doesn't come by and pat him on the back. He kicks him in the teeth, hits him over the head with the staff. 
our shepherd is busy protecting. He does not lay down his weapon and say, oh, I'm just called to be gentle. He's called to be vigilant, vigilant, watchful over his sheep. The anatomy of righteousness. We're to be gentle towards evildoers, but look at this. See in the blue? Violent towards evil. Let's read it again, just in case you're confused by this. Gentle towards evildoers, violent towards evil. Remember Jesus on the cross? What's he doing towards the evildoers? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What's he doing to evil? He's condemning sin in the flesh. As we were talking about last week, somehow on that cross, even though he was pinned to the cross, he reaches out and grabs the serpent, pins him up there. The wrath of God falls out uh, down upon him and consumes the offering. And all of sin, all of death is destroyed. He did it. It's a military victory. How did he do it while pinned to two pieces of wood? It's extraordinary. That's our God. Merciful towards sinners. Look at this one. Look at the blue. Forceful and fierce towards sin. Patient toward the weakness in others. Vigorously opposed to weakness in self. Lamb-like unto the people of this earth. Lion-like unto the forces of hell. Spiritual pugnacity. Now, I taught on this before. So you had to go back a few weeks to the 38th parallel. That was the name of the, uh, the message. But I was talking about pugnacity. What does it make you think of? It makes you think of a pug dog. So one of, one of the best mental pictures for this is ankle, pug dog, sort of like a bulldog type of dog, grabbing around the ankle and not letting go. And so there you are trying to get rid of it, and it won't let go. It's like, that's pugnacity. It will not stop. It keeps holding. It will not relent. Could you leave my pant leg alone? The answer is no, not on your life. Not until I get what I'm after. Pugnacity. Pugnacity. Combative, aggressive, antagonistic, belligerent, bellicose, warlike, quarrelsome, argumentative, contentious, disputatious, hostile, threatening, truculent, fiery, and hot-tempered. That doesn't sound like a Christian, does it? You see, we are not supposed to be this way towards God, and we are not supposed to be this way towards others. We are called to be this way towards sin. You see, there is something that is constantly hollering in your life. There's a bait that is always knocking, that is always boasting in your valley of Elah. And it's saying, you have nothing. Your God is weak. Look, he didn't come through for you. I thought he said he would. That voice deserves to be struck down. So you need to grit your teeth and go after it. Because that voice has no business roaming around in the land of Israel. If that Ishi voice, if that man-beast voice is hollering inside of your life, you take it down. The weapons of your warfare are mighty to do the job. Look at the antonym to pugnacity. Peaceable. We're supposed to be peaceable with all men. And yet pugnacious towards evil. When all means fail, the last blog entry by David Wilkerson on the day he died. This is what he wrote. To believe when all means fail is exceedingly pleasing to God and is most acceptable. Let me emphasize this. To believe, even though all means have failed, even though all the natural realm seems to be boasting, saying, look, your God has failed. To believe in such a situation is exceedingly pleasing to God and is most acceptable. Jesus said to Thomas, you have believed because you have seen, but blessed are those that do believe and have not seen. Blessed are those who believe when there is no evidence of an answer to prayer, who trust beyond hope when all means have failed. 
Someone has come to the place of hopelessness, the end of hope, the end of all means. A loved one is facing death and doctors give no hope. Death seems inevitable. Hope is gone. The miracle prayed for is not happening. That is when Satan's hordes come to attack your mind with fear, anger, overwhelming questions. Where is your God now? You prayed until you had no tears left. You fasted. You stood on promises. You trusted. Blasphemous thoughts will be injected into your mind. Prayer failed. Faith failed. Don't quit on God. Just do not trust him anymore. It doesn't pay. Have you guys ever heard these voices? Whose voice does that belong to? Is that God? That's Ishii, the man beast. That voice needs to go down. You show a pugnacity towards that voice. You grate your teeth. And you say, not on my watch. That lion or that bear comes into your camp and starts to rob one of your sheep. What do you do? You grit your teeth and you go after him. Now that's a lion with food in his mouth. That's dangerous. According to all practical wisdom, leave the lion alone. It's better to sacrifice a little sheep than to risk your life. Who came up with that logic? It's better to risk your life because there is no sacrifice too great to go after a little sheep. And your soul is sheep number one. And the enemy's after it. And it says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He ever lives to stand in the gap and be our shepherd. And he will save us to the uttermost. Are we willing to allow him to do it? There is no power that can stand in our soul outside of Jesus Christ. Even questioning God's existence will be injected into your mind. These have been the devices of Satan for centuries. Some of the godliest men and women who ever lived were under such demonic attacks. To those going through the valley and shadow of death, hear this word. Weeping will last through some dark, awful nights. And in that darkness, you will soon hear the Father whisper, I am with you. I cannot tell you why right now, but one day it will all make sense. You will see it was all part of my plan. It was no accident. It was no failure on your part. Hold fast. Let me embrace you in your hour of pain. Beloved, God has never failed to act, but in goodness and love. When all means fail, his love prevails. Hold fast to your faith. Stand fast in his word. There is no other hope in this world. Let me read these last three sentences here again. Hold fast to your faith. Stand fast in his word. There is no other hope in this world. The last lines of David Wilkerson. Okay, I'm going to read them again. Hold fast to your faith. Stand fast in his word. There is no other hope in this world. I say amen. Not for pride's sake, for Christ's sake. You know, some of us, we make some statements and we say, I'm going to accomplish this. And then guess what? Life is difficult. It's not working. And for pride's sake, everyone around us is saying, you know what? It's all right if you don't do that. You know, I'm going to. I'm going to make a million by the age of 25. You know, it's, it's all right if you don't. I'm going to. And so you kill yourself. You burn out attempting to just make money. You're serving the wrong thing. And, but you can't let go. Your pride is in it. You know what? Belligerence and pugnacity for pride's sake, will kill you. And it will kill everyone around you. It will destroy every relationship you know. It doesn't work. I'm saying pugnacity, gritted teeth, for Christ's sake. This is his reputation that is on the line. The world is looking around us saying, this Christianity is a joke. You know what is happening inside of Christianity? They're saying, we shouldn't believe these promises. This was for a different era, a different generation. The word of God must be trusted. It cannot fail us. If we don't have the word of God, if we don't have the soundness of the revealed words of scripture, if we can't stand on them and know and take them to the bank and say, God cannot lie. He has promised and he will fulfill his promises. We have nothing. This is the hope and the anchor of our life. But we stand, and we stand with gritted teeth, and we stand with pugnacity. And we will not back down. Not for pride's sake, for Christ's sake. The necessary test, when God asks for gritted 
teeth. Now what, what you're going to see is I'm going to start to overlap two concepts. Gritted teeth, pugnacity, spiritual pugnacity, and something known as faith. Faith, if we, our very simple definition for the day, could be gritted teeth. You say, my God has promised, and he cannot lie. And then every circumstance in life comes up to you and says, but what about this? But what about this? Oh, but what about this? Well, what about this? A lot of time has passed. And you say, my God has promised, and he cannot lie. Time passes. You get more emissaries. They're coming up to you saying, but what about this? What about this? What about this? Looks like your God has failed. My God has promised, and he cannot lie. Gritted teeth. Faith. Faith always must be tested. It's principle of faith. If your faith has not been tested, then it's not faith. Faith, by its very definition, is believing even when that which is seen is opposing it. Even if that which is around you is testifying to the opposite. You believe because you're not believing based on something you've seen. That's not faith. That's seen. That's just knowing it. It's like if Nathan was, you know, we were saying, what color shirt does he have on? It's black. I don't have to have faith to know it's a black shirt. It's just a black shirt. The necessary test when God asks for gritted teeth. Let's walk through these. You see four tests here. The Syrophoenician test, when God appears silent. The Lazarus test, when God appears to have forgotten. The walking on water test, when the powers of the natural realm seem too powerful. And the cross test, when God seems to have failed. Your faith must be tested. And if you're not familiar with this list, you probably haven't walked in faith. Because I tell you what, that list screams back at me. Remember? (laughs) Remember this, remember this, remember this. That's my life. In a nutshell, right there on that one page. That's my life. This is, this is hard, by the way. Anyone who you know, deals you out this concept that walking in faith is easy. Oh, yeah, well, that's a crutch. Oh, a crutch? It's the hardest way of living anyone could ever have. Is anything but a crutch. The Syrophoenician test. When God appears silent. Ask Whatsoever you will, and it will be done for you. God, I've been asking for this, and I, could you just speak to me, just something? I need to know that you're there. Why is it that you're not responding to me? Do you remember the Syrophoenician woman? It's a funny name, but she's a non-Israelite. It's the best way of putting it. Her daughter has a demon. She is, her daughter is plagued uh, and is absolutely miserable. And this woman knows that there is only one solution for her daughter. And that is Jesus Christ. So she cries out to Jesus. Cries out, cries out, cries out, and cries out. And guess what? He doesn't even respond. He's standing right there. He doesn't respond. By the way, this is your Jesus. He's not responding? Well, uh, Jesus, could you, and this is what the disciples said, could you get this lady out of here? Okay, obviously they know that Jesus isn't responding. So could you get her to quiet down? He turns to her and says, lady, this is after quite some time, okay, of him being silent. He actually does speak. And then he says, lady, I didn't come for you. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. You know what she says after he says he came for the children of Israel is that... uh, he actually, she, she appeals and says, well, even the dogs get to eat from the children's table, the crumbs. She actually is bowing down and worshiping him. Even though he was silent, and even though he seems to have shown a resistance against her request. She will not relent. What does she show? Pugnacity. She shows gritted teeth. There's nowhere else I have to go but you. I can't turn anywhere else. You're the only one that has what I need. You know what his statement is? Woman, great is your faith. That's his conclusion, by the way. Woman, great is your faith. And she receives exactly 
that which she asked for. When you receive silence from God, you need to realize it's the primary test. God is not silent. However, God will allow you to walk through a season of saying, will you believe me? Will you believe me? Do you know that I'm the only answer? Or if you sense silence from me, will you turn and find a solution elsewhere? Do you know I'm the only one? You see, faith, when it's tested, it's like a purifying of something, like a purifying of gold. And it removes the excess elements in it, purifies it, makes it worthy of something. It's transactable then in heaven. It's like coinage. A coin that is pure gold that is used effectively to purchase in heaven that which only can be purchased through pure faith. The Lazarus test, when God appears to have forgotten. You know what God says, Jesus says? He says, this sickness will not end in death. He says that to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. This sickness will not end in death. I don't know if any of you remember what happened to Lazarus. But Jesus leaves town. Now, all of us know Jesus can heal a guy any time he wants. This sickness will not end in death. He gave them a promise. This is exactly what our situation is. God didn't heal. He gave us a promise. He gave us a promise that it would not end in death, which is the same as healing, but it's not instant. And then Jesus leaves town. He doesn't just leave town, but Lazarus dies. Four days passes. Lazarus is buried in a tomb wrapped in grave cloths. And according to uh, the crowd surrounding the tomb, he stunk. In other words, deterioration had already begun to set into his body. Jesus shows up. What did it appear? That he had forgotten what he had promised. Um, don't, don't you remember? Remember what you said to us? He's dead though. You, you didn't come. You forgot us. Did Jesus forget? Jesus was in agony. The father was restraining him. The father was holding him back. In fact, you can see the well of emotion because that's the exact time when it says Jesus wept. He felt every inch of it of what they were feeling. But it was approving and it was for a greater glory. If it seems that God has forgotten you, I want you to know today, he has not. He is not silent or don't interpret his silence as him not being interested in answering. And he has not forgotten you. The walking on water test, when the powers of the natural realm seem too powerful. Jesus is on the water and he calls Peter out of the boat to literally walk on water. Peter gets out of the boat and is on water. He's actually walking on water. So more than just Jesus walked on water. Peter did too. So he's walking on water to Jesus, but something happens. The winds and the waves start blowing. And I, mean, I always picture this big crashing uh, surf that is coming against him. This is our life in a nutshell. God has called us to live the impossible life. He's standing there and he says, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes focused on me. And what's happening over here? We've got a big wave. Winds gusting through our hair, our clothes. We feel the effects of the natural realm. We're on water. We're, we're literally pulling off the impossible. But we need to consult the waves. Because if we don't posture ourselves and position ourselves for what's about to hit us, we're going to be swallowed up under. What's your confidence in? Because this is the test. Where are you focused? Are you focused on Jesus or are you going to look at that wave? What's more real to your soul? Who's in control of your life? When your eyes are on Jesus, you're secure. What he's promised, he'll get you to him. But he's testing you right now. Those winds and those waves are coming against you to prove your soul. What are you going to look at? Because some of you in your life right now, you know what Jesus has called you to. But you got some serious winds and waves blowing against you. And God's saying, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. No, don't look at that. I want you to show a pugnacity towards those winds and those waves. Grit your teeth towards them and say, I don't care how big you get. I'm keeping my eyes trained on my Messiah. 
And I will not care about you. You will not rule me. I am ruled by Jesus. And guess what happens to those waves, by the way? Here they are cresting over you. Your faith will literally (laughs) peel them back into the water. You'll see it every single time. At Ellerslie, we call them alarms. When the alarms start going off, keep your eyes focused on Jesus. That's all illusion. That's all hand-waving. That's all smoke and mirrors of the enemy. Do not buy it. You stay focused on Jesus Christ. When the powers of the natural realm seem too powerful. Well, guess what? Goliath seemed too powerful in the natural. David saw the bigness of his God. Where are your eyes trained? If you have spiritually gritted teeth, you will not relent. You will not turn. You will keep your eyes trained on Jesus. He has promised and he cannot lie. The cross test. When God seems to have failed. You believe in your Messiah. You trust your Messiah. And guess what? He's hanging on two pieces of wood in front of you. I mean, he's dying. He's not saying anything in his defense. He's being falsely accused and nothing is being said. This isn't good. This isn't good. Say something. Defend yourself. You are the true king, aren't you? Aren't you? What? I, I trusted in you. Now you're, you can just let them do this to you. You're not going to exhibit any strength on your behalf. When he seems to have failed. I want to know what type of moment that would have been for those that followed him, for those that put their trust in him. Was Jesus failing you? Was he failing his closest followers when he was dying on that cross? No, he was doing them the greatest service anyone has ever done for anyone. He was victorious. I don't care what it looks like. Our God will not lose. I don't care if it looks like in your situations in your life that your God is pinned to two pieces of wood and it looks like he's going down. Those who put their trust in their God will not be put to shame. The greatest scene is to stare in that that Calvary moment and to say, that is my God. And watch what will happen. But he is not defeated. And everyone could mock you and say, but he is defeated. He's dying. Watch what my God will do. Remember Jesus? Roll away the stone. But Lord, he stinketh. Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. It takes faith. It takes gritted teeth to trust your God. If he promised, he cannot lie. If he says this will not end in death, he cannot lie. You'll understand it in due time, even though it doesn't make full sense right now. Your job is to trust. Your job is to believe. Your job is to grit your teeth. Faith. Faith spurns the testimony of the natural realm if it stands in opposition to God's testimony. It refuses to receive the counsel of despair and heed the voice of discouragement. You see, when you're walking through those narrow trials, those narrow channels, and that voice starts hollering at you, it's trying to bait you towards discouragement. Your God doesn't look like he's coming through. It's bait. Grit your teeth and knock it in the teeth. You do not accept. You do not kowtow. You do not listen to that voice. Dokimion. It's the process of proving sterling coinage and demonstrating it to be genuine without alloy or without mixture. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Of course, patience is a lot bigger word than most of you would think it is. It's hupomone, which is like soul strength. Unbreakable soul strength. So that you do not go down. You do not cower. You do not fail. That the trial of your faith, you notice that there's testing of faith, there's the trial of faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. There's a forewarning here. Your faith will be tried. And it's not necessarily going to be easy. It'll be tried with fire. But that fire is everything that we have just mentioned. The seeming silence of God. The fact that it would appear that he's forgotten. 
That that the natural realm seems to be boasting a greater power, even though the word of God says it's defeated. And it's under the feet of Jesus. And even if it looks like your God has failed, he has not failed. For when God made promise to Abraham, made a promise or promises to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Most of us want to skip the patient endurance part. We just want the promise. Come on. God, if you promised, why isn't it here? You don't understand how faith works. We are the believers. We want everything to be seen. However, our job is to believe. What God has purchased on that cross is available to every single one of us that believe. But our job is to patiently endure with gritted teeth. And to keep pulling on those promises until they reach this earth. And we obtain them in this natural realm. The spiritual substance gained in this natural realm. You have to labor. You have to work in prayer to see that come. The picture in the Bible is the man king, 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 knocking on his neighbor's door. That neighbor has something that he needs. He needs bread. And he doesn't have it in his own house. And he knows his neighbor does. Kink, 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 kink. And God's likening himself to that neighbor. And he's saying, those who knock, the door will be opened. But guess what? When they come there, there's a closed door. The door is closed. Seemingly. But the closed door does not mean that the one inside doesn't want it to be opened. Our job is to knock. And through the knocking, something is taking place that causes what is on the other side of that door to see it opened. Our job is to believe that the one in that house has what we need. And that the only way to get that which is in that house is to knock, is to plead, is to make our requests known unto the one that is in that house. And whatever we ask to the one in that house, believing it will be done. Do you believe that? Because that's Christianity. It's the way Christianity has always been. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. If any man draw back, if any man shows that they don't have gritted teeth, if any man shows that they're a pushover to discouragement and despair... We'll have no pleasure in that. God has pleasure in faith. That's what pleases him. He's saying, my people, do you believe that when I speak, I cannot lie and I only tell the truth? And we nod. He says, do you believe my word is the word of God? We nod. We say, then believe it. I do not change. I'm not evolving. My purposes are not evolving. I know exactly what I'm intending to do here on this earth and it's revealed to you. You, as little children, take it. Believe it. And then with gritted teeth, hold your ground. If the door doesn't open immediately, you keep knocking. And what if it doesn't open after a year? You keep knocking. What if it doesn't open after 10 years? You keep knocking. There is still only one hope. Only one answer. Do not search elsewhere. You keep plying and seeking and desiring your God. That door will open. You must trust your God. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. When you have faith, you know it's real. Now, how, it's, it's a funny thing to try and describe faith to someone who doesn't have it. But it's the substance and the evidence of things hoped for and things not seen. So even though you don't see something, you believe it. We always use the illustration of the banquet in the back room. If I came out and I said, you know, I made a banquet for you back there, you would take me at my word and believe me. Why? Because why would I lie about something like that? How ridiculous. And so you would believe me. You'd take me at my word. And if someone said to you, what's in the back room? You'd say, oh, there's a banquet. Eric made a banquet. Well, guess what? When God speaks, he makes it clear. 
And it's evidence to our soul. Faith is. And so we're confident. I know it's true. How do you know? I don't know, but I, I know it's true. It's like it's seen something. It's, you actually are seeing it, but with spiritual eyes. It's real. Someone says God doesn't exist. You laugh at them. You're like, what? Are you kidding? I talk to them every day. In other words, it doesn't sit with your soul right. So something's wrong with it. Because this is real. If someone came up to me and said my wife didn't exist, it would be pretty preposterous. It's the same way it is with God. I have a very real relationship with God. There is no space for discouragement. There's no space for despair. Our God cannot lie. And he has promised. What faith is. Now I could say it's gritted teeth. But let's give an even broader definition. Faith is supernatural eyesight. A very real glimpse into the plans, purposes, and power of the Almighty. And being convinced of both God's desire and his ability to carry out those plans and purposes in your life. In your marriage. In your family. In your church. In your ministry. In your community. And in this world. How faith functions. Faith is heaven's currency or coinage. It is the power of God at work in the spiritual man in order to bring about God's ends. Basic principles of faith. The laws of heaven trump the laws of this earth and world. The laws of nature are subservient to the laws of the spirit of God. God proved this when Jesus came. He walked on water. For no apparent reason other than to demonstrate he was over the powers of this natural realm. Do you know who you are in? You are in Christ Jesus. And your faith has a greater confidence in your God than any natural circumstance you would find yourself in. Imagine if we had a crowd here and we were all getting hungry. And all we had was a couple fishes and a couple loaves. What's the natural say? Well, we don't have enough food. What does God say? You have sufficiency because you have me. Faith believes in a big God. It doesn't reason from the natural circumstances. It reasons from a big God. You know what Jesus rebuked his disciples when when he multiplied the fishes and loaves and fed 5,000? You know what he rebuked them and said, oh, you of little faith. Well, excuse me, Jesus, but that's just the way it is. I mean, you have a few loaves and fishes and you have a whole crowd The answer is not to try and feed them with a few loaves and fishes. It's to have them go back home and eat. But they had little faith. Why? Because they didn't believe in the bigness of the God that was with them. You must believe in the bigness of the God that is with you. Spiritual assurance. This is number two. Spiritual assurance is gained only through spiritual means. Prayer, obedience, patient endurance, and purity of soul. Faith is not positive thinking. It is a very real glimpse into the plans, purposes, and power of the Almighty and being convinced of both his desire and his ability to carry out those plans and purposes. I don't want you just to think of something you really want to have happen in your life. Oh, I would really like to have a new home, you know, that is 7,000 square feet. And I'd like to have a new motor home. You know, whatever it is. I mean, this isn't what faith is built on. Faith is built on promise. When God promises and he reveals his agenda... You stand in alignment with it. The way you gain faith is through spiritual means, which is what this is about. When you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, you know what happens? Your faith increases. What's funny is you could be praying for a year in regards to something that hasn't yet happened. However, after a year, your faith is bigger for that to happen. Sort of a funny statement. That's how it works. Obedience. When you obey God, your faith increases. When you disobey God, your faith erodes. Patient endurance. When you endure with gritted teeth, because that's what patient endurance is. It's gritted teeth. Because you have to know patience. Hupomone is just one of the strongest, manliest words in the Bible. And it's described as patience, which most of us you know, would say is standing in front of a microwave without yelling at it. Uh, but it means unbreakable. Able to carry great weights for unlimited periods of time. Patient endurance and purity of soul. When you walk the way God intends you to walk, the natural result is your faith increases. Three, for faith to grow, it must be fully invested. Some of you have a little penny of faith. Some of you have a nickel of faith. Some of you might have a dime of faith. And you're like, I I only have a little. And so I don't feel comfortable putting it all in on God. See, if you have a little faith and then a trial comes up in front of you and God says, trust me. You know what we oftentimes reason? Well, I don't want to spend my little penny for fear that God may not come through and I will lose my penny. 
I'll give you the secret to faith. If God gives you a penny, first of all, he gave it to you. Invested in him. You say, God, I trust you. You know what happens to that penny? It becomes a dollar overnight. Say you take your dollar, which is a lot. I mean, you've only had a penny all your life. Now you have a dollar. What do you do with it? Stick it all in on God. It's always all in. You always trust God with everything. You don't hold back. Do you remember the, the guy with the, the talent, the parable of the talent? What did he do with his one little talent? He buried it. The principle isn't, that isn't just a financial principle. It's a spiritual principle. It's a principle of grace. God is giving his saints a trust. What you have been given, you must invest in him. You invest in his kingdom and it will reap many rewards. Number four, faith, if it is real, is always tested to prove its authenticity. I know that one doesn't sound very inviting. We don't want our faith to be tested. We just want to believe something and have it happen. But God says, I need to make sure that this is real faith. Because when he pushes on our chest and we just fall backwards in despair and discouragement, it's not real faith. Real faith is like this. It's ready for it. It's like, God, I'm in this for the long haul. You promised you cannot lie. My face is set like flint. And we are not backing down. And then when you get the push, God goes, I like it. You get another push, he gets pleasure in seeing you with dogged determination saying, my God is faithful. And number five, faith, if it is real, remains steadfast and unshaken even when the natural realm lays out its arguments and presents its case of the utter impossibility of the task. I have had so many things laid before me of the utter impossibility of the things that I've been called to in my life. It just goes with the territory. I know it. That's the difference. Most of you are taken off guard by the statements of utter impossibility. And you just fold up and say, oh, I guess we can't do it then. Hey, who promised? Who cannot lie? Faith must once again arise in this generation. We take our God at his word and we believe it. And we stand fast no matter what the challenges are that we face in the future. We stand fast and we stand fast believing. Listen to this statement about Abraham. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. There's your scripture. He staggered not. He was fully persuaded. Fully persuaded. That's gritted teeth. You're like, why do you keep knocking on that door? Because I know he's in there. And I know he has what I need. You're knocking. No one's opening. He will open. He's fully persuaded. Well, aren't you getting a little tired of knocking? How are your knuckles doing? I don't care about my knuckles. I will spend my knuckles for the glory of God. Well, I don't hear any noise in there. Well, I do. I hear him shuffling around right now. He's constantly encouraging me to keep knocking. You see, you are built to believe. Your job description might not sound that extraordinary, but it's the greatest work on this earth. And that is to reveal the kingdom of heaven here. To bring the truth of heaven. To bring the purchase of the cross down to this earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the life of prayer. The life of prayer is grabbing a hold of those great and precious promises. Maybe I should use Peter's statement. Exceeding great and precious promises. Grabbing a hold of them and yanking them down to this earth and not letting go until they are fully realized here. Gritted teeth. We lost a great man this past week. You can't just replace a David Wilkerson. But I pray that God would marshal the same faith and doggedness and gritted teeth determination that was in that man. And he would stick it in us. Elijah was a great prophet. 
But when he went up in the whirlwind to heaven, he left something behind. And that was his mantle. And when Elijah grabbed a hold of that mantle, he took it to the river Jordan. It's a river. Mighty river. You can't cross the Jordan very easily. He says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And he struck the waters with the mantle and it parted. And he walked over on dry land. I pray that this generation does not forget to pick up what the previous generation of mighty, brave-hearted soldiers has left for us. And that we walk up to that Jordan and we say, where is the Lord God of David Wilkerson? Where is the Lord God of C.T. Studd, of Hudson Taylor, of George Mueller, of Charles Spurgeon, of A.W. Tozier? Where is the Lord God of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards? Where is the Lord God of William Booth? Where is the Lord God of Leonard Ravenhill? And we strike the waters. And something that happened back then in the ancient days and in the days of old happens once again in our generation. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.